It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. And welcome to our summer series, where we take a listen back to some of the great conversations we had in 2022. Now, back in June of last year, there was a lot of noise that Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter and that the uh, the Tesla a billionaire was setting his sights on turning Twitter into a uh, utopian landscape for all voices to be heard all the time. Well, how's that all worked out, I wonder? Back in June of last year, John L. Campbell, who's a sociologist and economist at Dartmouth University in New Hampshire in the United States, had been writing on the issue of Musk and billionaires and and why it's such a bad idea that billionaires have such unfettered power in the world and using Musk and also Jeff Bezos as examples of how their pet projects can actually have real-life consequences for others. So let's have a listen back to that conversation with John L. Campbell and uh, enjoy uh, what was, in many ways, a prescient discussion about what has actually come to pass. This is On The Job with Francis Leach. John L. Campbell, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. What does it say about the health of a community and a society when someone with excessive wealth can exercise enormous economic power, you know, tip, tip economies globally off the scale like Elon Musk can? At the same time, you know, there's poverty is on the increase and, uh, and social dislocation is a consequence. Well, you know, I think it's really a dangerous thing, although it's not a new thing. We've had robber barons in the United States from the mid-19th century and so forth. But the problem, of course, is that personal interest from the standpoint of super rich can get in the way of politics, can get in the way of good policymaking, can undermine democracy, can wreak havoc on a society. So it, it is is very much a concern that uh, people like Musk are on the rise. Do you think the social contract itself is under threat because of this? Because we have these billionaires now, I mean, almost exercising this enormous power at unfettered uh, access to uh, the global market and, and global politics as well. I mean, they, they are the, the giants that not only stride the nation, but the entire globe these days. Yeah, I do think that the social contract is in jeopardy as a result of this. And I'm not the only one. If you listen to Warren Buffett, for example, he's complained that uh, his taxes, although he's one of the wealthiest guys in the United States, if not the world, his taxes are lower than the taxes of his secretary. He complains about this all the time. And one of the reasons for that is because it just is extremely unfair. And to the extent that the perceptions of unfairness permeate a society and are on the rise, this can cause all kinds of problems. And we've seen it in the United States as well as other countries in terms of the rise of populism, both on the right and the left, Uh, demagoguery, authoritarian slants in politics, um, you know, people people believe that the system is increasingly rigged against them. Uh, and so either they opt for politics that are extreme or they opt out, which in a certain sense can also be devastating to an economy. So yes, the social contract is very much up for grabs in a situation like we're facing now. I, think. I mean, Trump in his election campaign said it out loud. I mean, he actually said it. What have you got to lose by choosing me? And that pretty much speaks to what you're talking about there, that people feel so disassociated and disenfranchised by the system that they might as well go for the mad guy. That's absolutely the case. I wrote a book a few years ago called American Discontent, which laid that out in spades, basically. And it, you know, if you look at the polling data, 
um, after both the 2016 and the 2020 presidential elections in the United States, it's clear who the base is for the Trumpsters. And it's people that are disaffected, both working class and middle class folks uh, who have been on the short end of the economic stick for a long time. Their wages have not gone up. In fact, if you control for inflation, they've gone down. And to be blunt, they're pissed off about this. And it's not a good thing. We did see President Biden in his campaign and even in his State of Union address, his first one, talk about good, secure union jobs. And for an Australian audience to hear a US president mention the virtues of unionism, we all fell off our chairs. Like It was just something we, we would never hear from, from many of our politicians. Has that been realised or is there a genuine attempt to shift that back, to push back against the exploitation of workers, the casualisation of work and the driving down of wages? Have you noticed that? Well, I mean, you have to understand an important difference between the United States and Australia is unionization rates. The private sector unionization rate in the United States right now is about 6%, virtually nil. Uh, it's, it's better in the public sector. I think it's 25 or 30% in the public sector, um, but it's still pretty bad. And so it's interesting when Biden came out with that statement uh, some of his advisors cringed a little bit because they thought, A, there's no support uh, among many working families for unionization, and that that just plays into Trump's wheelhouse, right? What do we need unions for? You work hard. You'll do fine. You don't need those guys. But he got away with it, Biden, that is, and he got himself elected president by a smidgen. We are seeing a, a, a renaissance of sorts with people organizing in unions. I mean, there's that very uh, high-profile case in New York at the Amazon warehouse there that's seen that choose to unionize, the first one to do. We've seen a number of Starbucks uh, also uh, staff starting to unionize, and these campaigns are starting to gather a bit of momentum that workers are realizing that their collective interests are best represented through unions. So that there is seeds and buds growing in terms of workers taking a bit of control back. No, that's for sure. Although there's been recently a second Amazon organization in, uh, I think it was Westchester County outside of New York, where the vote went down. So they turned that down. But you have to remember too, that the timing here is important in terms of unionization campaigns. The unemployment rate in the United States is at historic lows right now as a result of COVID. Wages on average, are rising more than they have risen in about the last 30 years or so. So to a certain extent, and I wouldn't want to overstate this, but to a certain extent, workers have been emboldened by the possibilities that unionization may be a good thing and perhaps more importantly, may be a possible thing. Whether this lasts, that's very much an open question because we're talking about the service sector, which has been notoriously difficult to organize in the United States for a whole slew of reasons. It tends to be dominated by women, tends to be dominated by minorities, and so on and so forth, which for a variety of reasons are more difficult to organize in some cases. So, um, so I think the jury is still out on whether this is just a little blip in the curve or something that's going to be more long-lasting. Well, someone like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos, I'd imagine, not too keen to see unions in, in their workplaces and taking some economic control back. Just how much tax does Musk actually pay on his billions and billions of dollars? Do we have any idea of what his contribution is? Oh, we know what his contribution is. Last year, he paid a tax rate of about 3%. That was his effective tax rate. 
that did not include a tax on unrealized capital gains. That is the increased value of his assets, such as his massive shares of Tesla stocks. In terms of billionaires in general, by the same metric, they tend to pay about 8% uh, effective income tax, excluding unrealized capital gains. Their effective rate, just in terms of capital gains earned and unearned income, is about 24%, which is a bit higher. But when you compare that to an average American worker who's making about $75,000 a year, their tax rate's about 20%. Not that much different, which again goes back to Warren Buffett's point that the system is skewed uh, in a terribly unfair fashion, which is bad for a variety of reasons. So we've had similar discussions here about uh, a higher tax on those who are making super profits. There was a campaign in 2013 against a uh, rent resources super profits tax in that if a company digs a huge mine in the Western Australian outback and is reaping huge profits by digging up iron ore, can only ever dig it up once, only ever get one chance to sell it, that if we put a tax on that resource going out and put that into a fund which will benefit the community long term and intergenerationally, then that's a smart idea. And a rent resources tax is something that countries with big resources base often have. Most smart countries do it. We had our rich miners campaign vociferously against this, Gina Reinhart and uh, Andrew Forrest and others, uh, basically saying it was the politics of envy and that it was class war politics. So they ran a a successful campaign to basically oust the Labor government that suggested this tax as a way of trying to address that balance. The politics of envy, class war politics, is the language that's used here in Australia. What's the sentiment in the United States around a bigger tax to actually make the rich pay their share? You know, on the political spectrum, from the centre on toward the left, for the most part, Uh, There is some sympathy for that, although there are moderate Democrats, for example, Joe Manchin, who's a senator from West Virginia, conservative, most conservative guy in the Senate. He's very much opposed to something like that. And certainly everybody on the right is opposed to something like that. Um, But it's interesting to hear the arguments against are that why should we punish people who have accumulated vast amounts of wealth? Let's think about where they got that wealth from in the first place. Many super rich people of the sort that we're talking about actually inherited a lot of it from the get-go. I mean, you want to talk about Donald Trump. Donald Trump got a million-dollar loan from his dad when he was starting out in the real estate business in Queens, New York. So there's that as a sort of counter-argument. Folks that are opposed to this sort of thing and are opposed to taxing the super wealthy also say this is just bad for the economy. These are the people that create jobs and that are innovative and so on and so on and so forth. The counter to that, of course, is, well, they do create jobs and they do contribute to innovation, but let's remember that they also get a big leg up and boost from the federal and state and local governments that give them tax breaks and build infrastructure for them and so on and so on and so forth. So why shouldn't they pay her back for the next go around? So there's there's a big debate about this in the United States right now. Elizabeth Warren went to the campaign trail last year with a policy to actually have a tax on the super wealthy. And it was seen to be very popular. Obviously, Bernie uh, Sanders did as well. What has Joe Biden in the White House proposed as a way to address this? He has made a proposition, has he not, to have a tax on the super rich? 
Yeah, he's got the so-called billionaire income tax, which is a proposal being considered in Congress right now. I doubt that that will pass. One never knows. But it's a pretty straightforward proposal. He wants to basically do two things. First thing he wants to do is raise the tax level on capital gains, which in the United States is taxed lower than income tax, earned income tax. So that's one thing. And the second thing that he wants to do is for people whose wealth is $100 million or more, which is something like 30,000 people in the United States, one one hundredth of the percent of the population, something like that. He basically wants to tax at a 20% tax rate their unearned capital gains. So a guy like Elon Musk, for example, who made about 68 or $70 billion in increased wealth just last year, much of it from his appreciation of Tesla stock, didn't have to pay tax on that because he didn't receive any dividends. It was just an increase in the value of his shares. What the Biden administration wants to do is tax that increase in accumulated wealth. But, and this is what most people don't realize, when it comes time for Musk to cash in those shares and reap the dividends, he would then get a tax credit based on what he has already paid in terms of the tax on unrealized capital gains. Because the Biden administration very much does not want to double tax people. They want to do it fairly, but they want to get the money incrementally rather than at the end of the game. We'll see where it goes. It would make a, a big difference if they could finally get these guys to actually pay their fair share and contribute. When we look at Scandinavian experiences, for instance, there is a much stronger, much more robust public sector, much bigger commitment to a comprehensive tax system and a progressive tax system that gets those who are lucky enough to be wealthy to pay their fair share and delivers the services people want. Somehow, both here in Australia and the United States, in the political discussion, we tend to just have this blind spot about it because we don't discuss this as a, as a model to follow because it's basically a threat to conservative ideas around what would happen in the event of a robust and uh, strong progressive tax system that the economy can still work, people can still have well-paying jobs and people can live well, but we also look after those at the bottom of the economic food chain. Yeah. I mean, Scandinavia is an interesting example of a broader, uh, a broader phenomenon. If you look at the OECD data and compare the OECD countries in terms of their tax rate, and this is the overall tax burden each society imposes on itself. Compare that with the rankings from the World Economic Forum in terms of how competitive your economy is. It's a very interesting trend line, which suggests that on average, not for all countries, but on average, the higher the tax burden, the more competitive, the more competitive the economy is. And the Scandinavian countries are out there on one end of it because they have some of the highest tax burdens in the advanced capitalist world. Yet, they are among the most competitive economies in terms of these annual rankings that come from World Economic Forum and so on and so forth. The question is why? Because this flies directly in the face of conservative dogma. Several reasons for this. I first figured this out many years ago. I was on a research trip to Denmark, sitting around the lunch table. I was studying taxes at the time. And I asked folks at the table, 
So you have some of the highest tax rates in the world. How do you feel about that? That's all I said. And the first round of responses was a lot of grumbling. Well, yeah, you know, our tax rates are so high and blah, blah, blah. I just sat there. I didn't say a word. And then people started to say, but, you know, we get a lot for those taxes. We get child care paid for. We've got universal health insurance. We've got education paid for up through and including university. We've got a clean environment. We've got a great infrastructure, cultural limit, and they just ran this list for about five minutes. So that tells us something right there. Beyond that, though, the Scandinavian countries, in terms of the economics of this thing, have been extraordinarily innovative and competitive, as I said before. So, for example, Denmark, which is the country that I know uh, the most about in the Scandinavian context, they have world-class uh, wind turbine manufacturing capacities. They pioneered this technology in the 1970s and the 1980s. How'd they do that? Well, they had big infrastructure support from the national government. Novo Nordisk, which is a giant uh, pharmaceutical company that you may have heard of, it's one of the major manufacturers and innovators in insulation delivery systems. Same story. Government took it upon itself recognized that there was a diabetes problem in Denmark, put money into research and development to help develop better ways to treat diabetes. Nova Nordic is, is now one of the leading companies in the world. And I could continue the story, but you get the idea. Uh, if you tax heavily, and if the government is smart enough to use those tax revenues wisely, this can be a tremendous boon for the economy. And as a result, you've got the Scandinavian countries that are oftentimes noted as some of the happiest people in the world, some of the healthiest people in the world, very productive, and it just works wonderfully. How does insecure work play into this dynamic? It's something that's been very much on the table during our current Australian federal election, that the idea that having a secure job with entitlements actually underpins the stability of communities and societies and gives people an opportunity to you know, build a future. Is that a discussion that we need to have more globally, that the insecure work model, which has been so predominant in Western liberal democracies, has basically undermined the stability of families and communities and the social consequences of that have been profound? Well, again, the Scandinavian context is instructive here. The Danes are noted for coming up with is sometimes referred to as the flex security system. What does that mean? Flex security is a system where you've got an extremely flexible labor market. Denmark has no protection for workers in terms of whether or not a company wants to hire or fire. They can do that pretty much at will, which gives them tremendous flexibility in the labor market to move labor resources around where it would do the company the most good. Now, of course, that's potentially dangerous to the workers, but there's a flexibility and a security element to the flex security system. So if you, for example, got laid off tomorrow from your job, you would still have universal health care. You would still have housing subsidies. You would have a variety of securities built into the Danish welfare state that would take care of you. So you wouldn't all of a sudden fall into poverty and be starving and have to sell your house and so on and so forth. You'd be fine. 
The third leg of this three-legged flex security stool is a training job re-education component so that if you lost your job tomorrow, you would find all sorts of support for retraining for whatever jobs were on the horizon. And it's a very effective system so that their unemployment rate in the midst of all of this, what we've been talking about has actually remained rather low and pretty healthy for a long, long time. What are the long-term implications for liberal democracies if the emergence of these new oligarchs continue? It seems to me we're heading to this, this land of digital feudalism where, say last year, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, people are really struggling, people are dying, uh, people are out of work and you know the world is in crisis, yet we've got Elon Musk firing off rockets into the sky and Jeff Bezos going into space and a, a total disconnect between the super rich and the realities on the ground. Just how much is what we value and treasure in terms of our, our values and lifestyle under threat because of this incredible gulf that's opened up and the power that is invested in these individuals? That's a great question. I think there are two big dangers that come to mind for me. One is, and we've talked about this a little bit before, one is the threat to democracy. Because when you have people like Bezos and Musk, Rupert Murdoch comes to mind. These people have tremendous financial resources with which to influence politics. And they can do, they can do that through campaign finance. They can do that through lobbying, a variety of other measures, um, perhaps more so in the United States than many other countries. Um, but that potentially can be a real threat to democracy, undermine the social contract, as we talked about before. The other and perhaps more recent concern that I have is about information and disinformation and fake news in the world around us. To the extent that Bezos now owns the Washington Post, and Murdoch, of course, has Fox News and Sky News. Musk has Twitter. These guys control the information flow, or they have the potential to control the information flow in potentially devastating ways for the operation of democracy. Because if it's the case, increasingly, that people sort of choose the facts that they want to believe, depending upon what media outlet they're getting from or what social media outlet they're getting from, can be devastating for democracy. So whether this is a potential for rising feudalism of some sort, I don't know. But I think it's definitely a concern in terms of rising authoritarianism. Uh, and we've seen it in the United States. We've seen it in Hungary. The Brexit situation is another example of this. Uh, we could go on and on. So I, I do worry about this. John L. Campbell, we thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on the job and uh, giving us your insight. And uh, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Be very much my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Francis. Sociologist and economist from Dartmouth University in New Hampshire in the United States, John L. Campbell on Elon Musk. Back in June of last year, discovering then the possibility of him taking over Twitter. And hasn't that just worked out all fine? That's the latest Conversation Now summer series. My name's Francis Leach, and we'll be back with another one next week here on The Job.
Rob, 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 Rob,